Before this episode begins, I wanted to let you know that we're starting a new support group for adoptive parents called Aptitude. It's for adoptive parents and foster parents who are facing adoptions challenges. Please find our website at safehomefamilies.com aptitude. Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast, where struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I'm Beth Syverson, a mom of a 17-year-old, oops, 18-year-old son who has been dealing with drug addiction, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation for several years. I am walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. The last several episodes of Safe Home Podcast have been pretty heavy about Joey's relapse and depression. So today's episode will bring us all some much needed light. You might remember that Joey was adopted when he was seven and a half months old. So we're always interested in hearing other people's adoption stories, how other adoptees manage their adolescence, how they form their identity, how they search for their birth family. Well, today's guest is a friend and music colleague of mine from Long Beach, Stan DeWitt. He has an incredible story of his adoption that will give you all the feels. He will make you think about how one person can change the trajectory of generations before them. The influence of parents, both adoptive parents and birth parents, and the mysteries of the universe that sometimes coalesce in magical ways. Spoiler alert, this story has a happy ending and you will enjoy hearing how the tale unfolds. I'm very happy this episode to be introducing a special guest, a colleague in front of mine in the music world. His name is Stan DeWitt, and he his, is an adopted person and has recently had a lot of news around his adoption and his reuniting with his birth family. So we thought we'd bring him on to talk about adoption since Joey was adopted at seven months and Joey's identified his adoption trauma as being a big part of the pain that's caused him to do a lot of self-destructive behaviors. So uh, whether or not that's true for Stan, I don't know, but we thought it'd be interesting to talk to a, a grown-up who's been adopted that can talk talk about how it's impacted his life and and even advice for me as an adoptive mom, you know, trying to shepherd Joey through his the rest of his adolescence. So so welcome, Stan. Thank you. Glad so to be glad here. you can be here. Uh, so I thought we could just start by you just starting from the beginning. I mean, the, the podcast is only like 45 minutes long. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I know there's a book or, you know, there's stuff that's going to there's, come out. There's, yeah, yeah. In, pro in progress, yes. But I'm definitely using writing to process everything. So, Excellent. so the uh, slightly condensed version of my story is that I was born in October 1963. Um, I was given up for adoption at birth. The first month of my life, I presumably was in some sort of orphanage because I was not adopted until November. Uh, and the day I was adopted was actually November 22nd, 1963, which of course was the day that Kennedy was assassinated. So my parents brought me home with a mixture of joy and grief at the same time. Wow. And I don't think that has anything to do with me, but my mother always did say, uh, well, when I brought you home, I, I thought that maybe this child would bring some of the uh, light back into the world that we lost with JFK. So oh. as a as a kid, that always was kind of like, uh, you know, grown mom, come on, knock it off. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then they divorced when I was about um, four or five. And my dad stayed in California for a while. 
and I was living with my mother, no other siblings, just the two of us. And then he moved back after a year or two to be with his parents in Wichita and then moved to Kansas City to be near his sister and her family. So the, my, my connection with my dad from that point on was really just holidays and summer. You know, I'd go there, you know, on summer vacation for a couple of weeks or I'd go for Christmas or Thanksgiving. And then with my mother, it was, it was always a bit of a challenge. She was, she probably would be categorized as bipolar if she ever had that diagnosis. And so there were times when it was, was great and, and really good. And there were times where, you know, she would just be really rationally angry for different things. She had a, a lifelong feud with her sister, my aunt, that lasted until the day she died. And my, my aunt actually was one of the people in my life who made the biggest difference in my life. She was really a very positive force. So, you know, my, my teen years and young adult years were really kind of spent learning how to create boundaries for myself. And it really took a long time for me to learn that. And I, I probably wasn't in, in my 30s before I learned how to express myself, how to assert myself, how to create boundaries for myself that were healthy. And we were talking earlier about whether or not the adoption issue really played much into whatever I was dealing with when I was in the high school years and teen years. And I don't know that it did, but I think part of that is because I got into music fairly early. Uh, I was 10 when I started taking drum lessons and then guitar lessons after that. And by the time I was in high school, I was hooked and I was, you know, everything was about music for me. And I think having that kind of gave me a forward momentum and kind of kept me going. Yeah. Um, I know at one point my mom talked about moving back to Denver, which is where I was born. Mm. Uh, and I remember feeling like that would be the worst possible decision that she could make for me. Like if we had done that, I think my, I would have, I would have reacted really badly. So, yeah. um, but staying where I was and, and being able to really focus on music helped kind of work through any of that stuff. And then, so I just, you know, I, as you mentioned, I, I do have a career in music and I, I graduated with a bachelor's and a master's degree in, uh, from Cal State Long Beach. And, uh, and, I, and I've been very happy with that. It's, it's been something that has fed me. And I, and I have to give my mom credit in that when, when she had to make the hardest decisions, like the one time I did get arrested. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I want to hear about that. <laughs> she, she handled it well. I, well, I was with, anyway, I was in junior high and um, a friend and I, he said, let's go to J.C. Penney's and we can steal an album. And he basically grabbed an album out of the record bin and we walked out the first time and he stole a record and I was with him. And then he said, let's do it again. And we did it another time. And the second time we, we did not get out of the store. We actually got caught. And she, rather than berate me or, you know, blow up at me, which is what I thoroughly expected her to do. She took me to her work. She worked at the uh, city hall in Fullerton and, and introduced me to everybody she worked with. And, and then we went out to dinner. And we had a oh. nice, long, calm conversation about what productive people in society do and what they don't do. <laughs> um, and at the end of it, she said, you know, I do have to ground you. So and I, I got it. I, so, but she didn't um, do it vindictively or harshly. It sounds like she did it. Oh, this is your natural consequence for what you just did. And She did, yeah. And, really it, and like I said, there were many times where that wouldn't have been the case, where hmm. 
where the you know the the issue was much less, and she did she did not handle it well. But in those moments when she needed to have her A game, she did. And I think the key thing of that is that she supported everything I did in music. Uh-huh. Um, so you know she was very supportive and very encouraging of that. So that helped. That's great. Um, so fast forward then in 2000, my dad died in uh, 1985. So I was only 20, 21. Mm. Uh, and my mother died in 2008. And we decided to go to scatter her ashes in the Rocky Mountains. Mm. Um, and I knew that was where, when she was in Denver, that was the point where she was happiest in her life. So my girlfriend and I, Linda, flew to Denver and I decided while I was there to start looking, doing some research on the adoption mm-hmm. stuff. And I, I think now looking back on it, the only reason I didn't do it before was because even though she said, um, I support you wholly if you want to find something, you want to do the mm-hmm. search, I think in the back of my mind subconsciously, I felt like she would not react well to it. So I didn't. And then it was after she passed away that I started looking. And so while I was there in Denver, I found out that that Colorado had passed a law saying I could get my original birth certificate, anybody born before 1969, which meant my, because the birth certificate itself had my, my legal one had my adopted mother's, my adopted father's name. So when I sent away for the new one, uh, the original one, I knew it was right because my, my parents had two little bits of information about, about the adoption that, that my mother had given me. One was that when I was born, my my name in the orphanage was Baby Boy Brooks. So I knew Brooks was the last name of my mother or whoever. So then uh, the other thing was that there was a little piece of paper that had a, a, like three sentences about my mother and about my father. My mother was of English and Irish descent and was Protestant. None of the stuff that is important, like history of heart disease or diabetes, it was right. all oh. you know, like... Oh, just long we're not getting a Catholic baby. <laughs> that, that's what was important back then, I guess. Right, so, right, right. so um, and then my father said Protestant and and of Polish descent. So when I got the original birth certificate, it listed my mother's name as Ellen Brooks, and my father's name was listed as Paul Tobik. And I decided to do some research and signed up for Ancestry.com and I found nothing when I looked for my father. There was nothing at all I could find. But my mother, I actually stumbled upon a marriage record from in Casper, Wyoming, which is pretty close to Denver. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe that's her. It was an Ellen Green, who whose maiden name had been Ellen Brooks. So because it was a marriage record, it had a phone number and an address. And so I called the phone number and I got her. And wow found out after a couple of questions that it was her, that I'd found my birth mother. And the first question she asked me when I, when I found her was, I said, did you ever give a son for adoption? And she said, yes. And she said, are you him? And I said, yes. And she said, are you happy? Mm-hmm. And so she was open to having a relationship with me right from the beginning. And, and it was, it's been a really great relationship. It continues to be, she's still alive and, um, it's been wonderful. So uh, I found out I have a half sister, which would be my first sibling ever because I didn't have any wow. from my daughter family. Mm-hmm. And found out the, the the origins of my story are that m- my mother was 17 when she had her oldest daughter. And 
was an alcoholic by the time she was 20, divorced and had lost her daughter in the divorce. Mm. Um, and when she had me, she knew she needed to go into AA and sober up. So she did and uh, gave me up at birth because she knew there was no way she could support having a, a baby. So knowing that kind of freed me up in a way psychologically because I realized that, you know, and I think, you know, I, I read several adoption books as I was going through this journey, particularly before looking for Ellen. And one of the th things that seems to be a common trait amongst adoptees is that they either form a, a, a vision of what their, their biological parents were as horrible and awful, that they gave up me and then my adoptive parents saved me their saints, mm -hmm. or they they feel like their adopted parents are horrible and awful. <laughs> and and they 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 then lionize their their birth parents, even though they don't know anything about them. They they think they must have been wonderful people and something must have happened mm -hmm. to give them up, to make them give me up mm -hmm. and put me with these horrible people. Mm -hmm. And it's a seems to be a common thread. And I I've heard enough adoption stories to, to realize that there's some truth to that. I don't know where I was on that spectrum, but I do know that when I found Ellen and heard her story, I realized for the first time that what had happened was the most selfless act that could, that a mother could do to, to make my life possible. So I've always been grateful to her for that. Um, so fast forward again to this past April, <laughs> and I decided to take the 23andMe DNA test because I wanted to know more about my father's side if I could find anything out. Mm -hmm. And what happened in the last six months since then has just been mind blowing. My results came back. And the first thing I noticed when I was looking at the genealogy part was there's no Polish blood in here at all. Okay. So the Polish was a wrong guess or, or well, it was, it was on that piece of paper and, and the, and the father's name was Paul Tovic. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that was a lie. All of that was made up in that original birth certificate, not the one that, that from my adoptive parents, but the one from my birth. They filled in a father's name and made up information about my father. For what reason, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I assume it's because a woman giving up a baby on her own as a single mother would have been traumatic enough, but then to, have, to do that and not know who the father was, would have been like, you know, the Scarlet A. It was just would have been a horrible thing yeah. for a woman to have to go. So I presume that they did it because they were trying to pr protect my mother. But it seems to be a pretty, pretty crazy thing to do. But, you know, <laughs> there you have it. Um, oh, goodness. And so the next thing I noticed when I realized that the, the DNA test allows you to see who you're connected with in your DNA, mm -hmm is that I have a first cousin once removed who lives here in Long Beach in the same city that I do. Whoa, uh, what yeah. are the odds of that? Wow. There were like, there were like there were three or four mind blowing moments in the last six months and that was the first one. Mm -hmm. So I looked her up on Facebook. We have 10 mutual friends. I sent her a message on Facebook. We connected that night. We talked on the phone, realized that the surnames in my mother's family tree and the surnames that she knows are not connected, which means that she has to be on my father's side of the family tree. Okay. So we started doing some sleuthing, then 
without going into all the details of it, we knew it had to be somebody that, that was in Denver in 1963. Mm -hmm. So we, we decided to focus on one of her, her father's family had, there were seven siblings for her father. So she has six aunts and uncles. Mm. One of them had, uh, one of the aunts had three boys and two of them are still alive. And both live in Maryland. And as it turns out, my cousin was going with her husband to, to watch the fireworks in Washington, D.C. And they contacted both of them and said they're going to come visit him. And one of them, they said, would you be willing to take a DNA test? Because there's this guy who's showing up and, mm -hmm. you know, we might we might have some sort of relative. Uh, and he agreed. Uh, and he's never had any kids. So he thought, well, this might be interesting. You know, we have another relative in the family. Wow. So as I was waiting for those results, one day out of nowhere, another name pops up in my DNA results. And it turns out uh, that she's related to my mother and she's my mother's granddaughter. Oh. So I don't have kids, so it's not my child. And so I contacted my sister, my older sister, half sister. And I said, did you ever give up a child for adoption? And she said, no. And I realized that the only other option was that my mother had given up two children for adoption. Oh. And so this woman who showed up is the daughter of my mother's other daughter, my other half sister. Wow. So she had taken the DNA test as well. So a week later she shows up and we start talking and realizing that my mother, after she had divorced or after she was divorced by her husband, she had a second child and gave it up for adoption. And I think now knowing her story more, my middle sister was born in September of 1962. And I think that's when Ellen started really drinking because at that point she's 20 years old. She lost one daughter to divorce. She's lost another daughter to adoption and she's single and life's falling apart. Mm -hmm. um, so when she met my father, whoever at that point I didn't thought it was, probably in January or February of 1963, she was at the deepest, darkest point in her life. So in a way, I realized that, you know, her, the story she said was that when she was pregnant with me, she didn't know it yet, but she went to the doctor and the doctor said, if you don't stop drinking, you're going to kill yourself. And by the way, you're pregnant. <gasps> and she immediately, oh. she immediately went into AA and got sober. Oh, and so the last of her pregnancy with me, she was sober and then she gave me up for adoption and she's been sober ever since. Wow. Um, very admirable. So in a way, my father, whoever he would turn out to be, and myself, without even knowing it, kind of had a hand in saving her life because it was that pregnancy that, that triggered the, the trip into AA. Wow. So then a few weeks later, my, my wife and I are sitting, who was the girlfriend I went to Denver with in 2009. Uh, we're sitting in a cafe in Temecula and I open up my phone and there's my father's name and my father was the one who took the DNA test. Um, so we were right. It was one of the two brothers. Mm -hmm. And so here's the amazing thing from their perspective on all this. My mother had three kids, two of which she never had children. The other one she never told us about. So my sister, my older sister and I didn't know it was another child. But as it turns out, she has a daughter and three grandchildren, which means my mother at the age of 80 is a grandmother and a great grandmother three times over for the first time in her life. Wow. 
Next mind blown moment. My biological father never had children. Wow. So he's a father for the first time at 85. Wow. So last week, actually, my wife and I flew to Maryland and met him for the first time and spent a week with him. And, and it was mind blowing. So fantastic. That's, that's the story. And wow. So it, it gives me a lot of um, perspective on the adoption journey and, you know, having been on both sides of it, of, of being not knowing anything mm -hmm. and, you know, learning to live with your adoptive family mm -hmm. and then going to this at this point in this stage of my life to how all of a sudden have this huge family of biological relatives and to have it go so well. But to also hear other people tell me stories about how their journey did not go well, that they found mm -hmm. their mother or father or whatever, and the mother said, I don't want anything to do with you. Yes. So, or sometimes I've heard the other way around. They find them like the adopted person right. doesn't want anything to do with them. So I'm incredibly grateful and blessed is an easy word to use, but I don't know any other word to use for it, but to, that's the way this is all played out. Well, I've watched it blossom on Facebook and it's just so beautiful. It's just your family is exponentially grown. <laughs> Every time I open your page, it's like, oh, there's more, there's more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you all look so happy and they're all warmly embracing you, which I suppose isn't always a given. You know, maybe somebody finds out that, you know, a relative of theirs had a baby and didn't tell anyone or had a baby out of wedlock. You know, some people still think that's like, ooh. Yeah, yeah. So, I think I think that, that, that there's a couple things that helped make this possible for me. One of the things is that I have how do I how do I shorten this because it's kind of a long thing. Um, I was the artistic director for a choral group Zephyr um, mm -hmm. for a couple of years. And Zephyr was an artistic collective. So everybody had say in what was going on. And so the role of the artistic director in that group was basically to referee the fights and, okay. you know, make the final decisions when one was necessary. And I learned a lot about kind of leadership role in that job. And then I, and, and then this job here, uh, a minister of music at Grace First Presbyterian Church, I, I kind of expanded on that. And I use kind of my, my creative processes that I use for songwriting and for composing, I use kind of the same process when I'm working with people or I'm, I'm trying to develop leadership. And uh, a lot of that has to do with just being open to new ideas, mm -hmm. being willing to try new things and not assessing judgment if it doesn't go well and, and being able to, you know, make a difficult decision to cut something if it's not working but it's not an emotional decision. You don't hang your hat emotionally on it. So that and meeting my wife, particularly the way that my wife and I met, and I'm, I won't go into that because it's just not about that. But uh, we both recognized that our meeting was meant to happen at that particular time. And it, I'm not trying to be godish about this. I'm not saying that. And what I'm saying is it, it happened because at that point in our life, we were both open and vulnerable enough to be willing to oh, throw our arms up to the universe and say, okay, bring up, let's, let's try something different. What we're doing is not working. Let's try something different. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that openness is certainly what made me look for Ellen. And it's certainly what made me comfortable taking the DNA test, not knowing what I would find and just embark on that journey. Mm -hmm. And I think the key part of that is just being open to whatever, whatever might come. And it's that scary. Yeah, I'm sure that's really scary. And um, I'm just so happy that it's turned out the way it has. And I'm sure it won't always be idyllic. I mean, there might be some parts of your family that might cause conflict or whatever, but you have your, like any family, but I'm so glad yeah. you've landed in it's such a positive, uh, nurturing, warmly accepting family. Yeah. Wow. And the other thing that I would say, and this is probably the key takeaway for me that relates to what this podcast is about and teens and youth going through angst about this. Mm -hmm. The day that I, that I opened my phone and I saw on the app, my father's name, and I realized I had found my birth father. It was such an emotional moment. Mm -hmm. It was a huge thing for me. Mm -hmm. And I won't go into all the reasons why I, I knew that I needed, I, I didn't have a father figure growing up until I was in college. And then I had one and it was a great relationship with my mentor, but this was different. This mm -hmm. finding my birth father was, was huge for me. Mm -hmm. And finding my birth mother was too, but it was different. You know, the, the relationship with birth mother is she knows you exist. Right. Yeah, that is she gave huge. she gave birth, right? <laughs> yeah, she would and, and, that. And the birth father may or may not. And in my case, he did not. He had he no clue. Even though he was a father at all. Wow. No, no. It was a brief, uh, a brief encounter, and that was it. And I never mm -hmm. saw each other again. Mm -hmm. So there was something about the, the finding of my father that was so moving, but it was also really disorienting. And I I, mm -hmm. I realized quickly that I was, I was in danger of becoming a bit unmoored emotionally mm -hmm. because of it. And we, we were in Temecula when, when I saw the news and we were coming back home and I grew up in Fullerton and we were on the freeway and I, I, I all of a sudden felt this overwhelming impulse uh, to, to stop in Fullerton and see the place where I grew up. And I told Linda, I said, well, I have to see the house mm -hmm. where I grew up and I have to see the apartment where my grandparents lived and I need to see these places I need to ground myself in that mm -hmm. because I realized quickly that all of this stuff has been really cool and mm -hmm. I and I and finding my father and making that connection has been amazing but really I'm only able to do that because of the people and places and the experiences that I had with my adopted family and all the people that I grew up with that got mm -hmm. me here mm -hmm. so good or bad that's who I am. That's what informs who I am. The DNA stuff, the genetic stuff that I see in relationships with my mother and my father are subtle and they're definitely there. I can definitely mm -hmm. see the things that, oh, I got this from my, my birth father's DNA. Oh, I got this from my birth mother's DNA. But that, by and large, that's much less important to who I am than the adopted part. And, and if I, I guess if I had any advice for an adoptee who's who's going through this right now it is come to terms with who you are as the adoptee mm -hmm. because the birth stuff if you find it out ever mm -hmm. it might be great it might be bad it might be indifferent mm -hmm. as we we're talking about a minute ago but really who you are is based on what what you've been raised with mm -hmm. um 
And I know for me, one of the turning points for me as an adult was when I, <laughs> when I was talking about those boundaries. And I, when I made the, when I first was able to express my boundaries with my mother. And again, it was, I was 30, 31, I think. Mm -hmm. That was the moment that I changed because I realized I could forgive her mm -hmm. and I could move forward as an adult and not be beholden to the bad feelings that I had about her. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's really a key takeaway for me of this is you are who you are because of your adoptive family for better or worse. So work on that. Yeah, yeah, because that's where you've spent your your life, right? Your your waking moments, those years that are so important uh, when you're growing up, all those experiences in school with your music and um, the DNA is super important. I actually believe in intergenerational trauma and I think that stuff gets passed down through your DNA. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. Do you have any insight into I, that? I, I, I totally do. I, I'm, and and I didn't realize this until last week, but, mm. you know, I mentioned how I grew up without a father figure because my parents were divorced. My dad was halfway across the continent. Um, both my mother and my father grew up without fathers as well. Mm. My mother's father, she was born in 1941. He enlisted in the army, uh, went to Europe. And a couple of years into the war, he wrote his wife saying, I want a divorce I, and I'm marrying a French woman. He fell in love with a French woman and divorced his wife in the United States. So she got a Dear Jane letter, you know. Oh, no. Yeah. And oh, so terrible. then for my father, there were three brothers in that family. And his father basically ran off with a woman and left their mother to try to raise the three boys in the Depression. So in the late wow. 30s. And they were in Lincoln, Nebraska, and no one would rent a house or an apartment to a single woman with three boys. So she had to put them in an orphanage for three or four years until she could get enough money and enough support oh, that she could God. live. So all three of us had various degrees of father trauma. Yes. Um, and I, yeah, I totally yeah. believe now that that's a, that's a generational trauma that came down to me. And just subconsciously, maybe they're kind of replaying that, even if they don't do it on purpose. It just yeah, yeah. and it's kind of like the karma or reincarnation mm -hmm. concept. This idea that you know, when you when you live one life, mm -hmm. you come back in the next life as, as as a way to try to repair the wrongs or fix yeah. the things that didn't work in your yeah. previous life. So I'm obviously we're not talking about one person in multiple lives, but we are talking about generations. Yeah, yeah. And it's 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 fascinating to me that that I ended up having to, to try to solve the fatherhood thing the same way both of my parents did, and I've done it right because yeah. <laughs> yeah. I found them and they're and they're both good and and they're both still alive. So I, there there is something to that that I, I really yeah. feel strongly about. That's amazing. Yeah, it takes uh, it takes a lot to kind of reroute that that path sometimes that yeah. many generations have gone. It takes like a major, er, we're going to go this way now. That's amazing. Now, don't answer this if you don't feel like it, but you don't have kids. Is that at all related to this father trauma business or is that just completely separate? It is totally related. It isn't. My marriage to Linda is my second marriage. My first marriage, we decided not to have children. And we were married for 15 years. I realized way too late that 
I have let her drive that discussion. Again, the boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. I was not able to draw the boundaries for myself to say, no, I want to have kids. Or, or maybe I didn't realize that I wanted to have it until it was too late. But in any case, then I did not have children for my first marriage. And when I met Linda, she could not have children. So there was, there's no children. I, this is going to sound strange or maybe it'll make total sense. But one of the moments that I've had in the last couple of weeks that kind of wrecked me for a couple of days was before we went to Maryland. And knowing I was going to meet my birth father and that he was going to meet his son for the first time at 85 and that he had a son and he didn't know about it. And all of a sudden, his son shows up and he's 85 years old and the relationship already, we can tell from letters and phone calls, it's going to be fantastic. Yeah. And I realized I'm jealous of my father because oh, okay. I want that experience and I'm, I'm not I'm not going to have it. I, I, I can't imagine any scenario where that's going to happen for me. <laughs> So that was hard. That was really hard. And so, yes, not having children is part of that trauma for me, I guess. Yeah, it's just interesting how that all happened. And by the way, you're super lucky that your dad is still alive Yeah. at 85. I mean, there's a lot of people that, you know, they wait till their adoptive parents are gone. And then by that time, a lot of times their birth parents are also gone. Then you... Yeah, dead. he's he's 85. He's funny. He's smart. He's he's bright. He can His hearing's intact. He can... He still jog walks a mile a day. I mean, I'm, oh my gosh. I, he's an inspiration. <laughs> you got good genes. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I guess so. I, I need to start <laughs> jogging more, but yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so awesome. Oh my goodness. This has been so interesting for me as an adoptive parent. And just to hear someone's story in depth like this is always so inspiring and just makes you think. Yeah. about your relatives, about connections, about these kind of cosmic confluences. Like, how did that happen like that? I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. Well, I have, I have one more story to tell yeah. you about this that I, um, as I said, I'm writing this as I go and I have a blog. And so a lot of it's been written in the blog and I'm going to take the blog posts and kind of rearrange them and, and edit them mm -hmm. and put them into something that'll probably be a booklet. Well, <laughs> I don't know it's enough <laughs> for a book, but the latest realization I had was it's, it's kind of strange but uh, if, I don't know if you're familiar with the con theoretical physics concept of Schrodinger's cat I read that blog that was amazing you can yeah, talk so about that would be great I first heard about a big bang theory so you know there's that <laughs> but the idea is that if somebody hands you a, a box that has a cat in it you don't know if the cat is alive or dead until you take the lid off the box and Schrodinger's argument was that the cat is both alive and dead and this is part of the theoretical physics argument for alternate universes, whatever. Mm -hmm. But I realized that I'm showing your son because there's no way I could have found my father earlier in life. There's no way my father could have found me at 85 before now because the person that I am and the experiences that I had led me to the moment where I could do this search and find it myself. Mm -hmm. So Schrodinger's box lid was lifted the moment I took the DNA test. Mm -hmm. And at that point, then we know I have a father, he lives in Maryland, and, and all of this other stuff has now happened. And this goes back to what I was saying about, you know, for the adoptees to really focus on your adoptive upbringing, because mm -hmm. you're Schrodinger's child too. You can't know anything about your adoptive parents 
unless at some point down the road that lid gets lifted. Mm-hmm. You may or may not like what you find. I got lucky, but a lot of people mm-hmm. don't. So mm-hmm. you you have to acknowledge that there's no alternate universe where where your life is better. And I, and I look mm-hmm. back now, knowing both my mother and my father's story, if he had found her later that day after their first encounter and asked her out on a date and they had somehow ended up being married and raised me as a child, I think my life would have been a disaster. And I say that because I know that the things and the people that made my life what it is today, the things that got me into music, the the mentor who taught me so much about life and about music and living, the wife that I didn't have a child with, the wife that I now adore, who, who we have, you know, these amazing life experiences with, all of that would not have happened. And I wouldn't be the person I am today. So you are Schrodinger's child and you have to accept that until and if the lid ever gets lifted on your box, mm-hmm. you are who you are. Yeah. Wow. That is deep and I'm getting all tingly again. <laughs> <laughs> Where can people find your blog if they want to read more of your story? Um, it's called Joy and Music is the name of the blog. If you look up blogger, Joy and Music, you'll find it there. And I actually it. started it the day after my adopted mother passed. So it's it's been oh, all stuff since then. Was it always about adoption or just happened to be that after your mother passed, you just happened to open a blog or? It just, yeah, it was that. I just, At that point, I hadn't even begun to think about looking huh, for huh, adopt, my adopted parents. But huh. uh, it, it was really more of just a writing exercise because mm-hmm. I was starting to get more into creative writing and I wanted to mm-hmm. have an outlet to do that. So. Yeah. And as it turns out, then as all this stuff unfolded, I used it as a way of processing as well. Oh, very good. I'll get the URL and put that in the program notes for Great. anyone just wants a fast link. Are there any other music projects or anything else you'd like to plug? There's nothing in the works at the moment, Major. I, I will say that my production partner, Derek O'Brien, and I finished our big bucket lips project was a rock opera that we premiered last February right before the pandemic. So unfortunately we premiered it and then we had to put it on the shelf for a while. So nothing is happening with it yet at the moment. However, Derek is finishing up the production on a video from the night of the show. And at that point, then we'll be shopping it around to hopefully get somebody else to to produce it and put it up on stage. So that's probably the biggest project I have still kind of in the works at the moment. And um, beyond that, I'm the executive director of Long Beach Youth Chorus and I'm trying to build that up and, Uh and, uh, you have any kids in Long Beach from grades five through 12 that sing, send them your way. It's longbeachyouthchorus.org. Awesome. Oh, that sounds so great. You're, you're doing so much wonderful things in music and in the world. And I just really admire you. And I, I'm going to continue to enjoy following you on Facebook and seeing where your life takes you. Thank you very much. And it's been uh, really great to, to share this experience with you today. Yeah. And I know Joey had hoped to be here today and he wasn't here, but I know he will really enjoy hearing your story and hearing what it's like, you know, when you're a little older and you kind of look back and see how adoption has affected you and not and things to be grateful for. And Yeah, and, and, and Joey, I know you don't know me, but Beth can put you in touch with me if you have any questions, if you want to get together and have a cup of coffee and, and talk this through, I'm happy to do it for you. Let me know. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you so much. Wasn't that an amazing and uplifting story? I hope you really enjoyed that. Thank you so much, Stan. Just a reminder, Safe Home Podcast is present on all the social media sites. You can also subscribe to our podcast on YouTube if that's easier for you. 
And we do have a Patreon account if any of you are interested in helping support the podcast so we can maintain commercial-free episodes. You can support us with a small monthly donation. Patreon makes it really easy to do so. Patreon.com slash safe home. Please share our podcast with other families you know who have teens and preteens. And if you know any people who have been affected by adoption, I invite you to share this episode with them. Thank you so much and stay safe.